Welcome. This is an audio recording of the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. The Council is a non-profit membership organization dedicated to engaging the public in an exploration of global issues and foreign affairs, and we produce over 80 public events each year. To learn more about us or to become a member, visit dfwworld.org. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. It's now my privilege tonight to welcome David Frum. Uh, Mr. Frum is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, an organization which has often brought us speakers, and we're grateful for that. Um, he is a, was a speechwriter and special assistant to George W. Bush from 2001 to 2002. Um, like you, I've read his op-eds several times in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal. Um, he's also been published in the National Post. And as we know, he has this new book, Comeback, Conservatism That Can Win Again, the topic of his speech this evening. Uh, I'm not going to tell you what that book is about because he's going to uh, tease you about it, and then you're going to buy it, and then we'll all know a lot more. Please welcome David Frum. Well, well, thank you so much, and thank you to the um, World Affairs Council in Dallas. Uh, this is the, my second time um, at, um, at your events, and I have always found uh, very well-informed, attentive, and interested audiences, and I'm grateful um, that you all came out on what passes in Dallas for a snowy night. <laughs> uh, I, although I spent the past three days in Los Angeles, so I'm now convinced that it's snowy, too. Uh, I, uh, the book that um, uh, is sitting on the chair there, I have started work on shortly after the 2004 election. And many friends have looked at this book and wondered how in the world did I possibly manage to spend three years writing such a short book. Now, one answer is that inside every fat book, there is a thin book screaming to get out. <laughs> and, and in this case, I spent about a year on the surgery. You can call it the Mike Huckabee approach to authorship. More seriously, I began work on this book in early 2005. It was a time of giddy optimism among Republicans. The long-awaited realignment had at last arrived. But that's not how it looked to me at the time. I had been involved with the campaigns. Um, I had seen the election very closely, and uh, it had been to me actually one near-death experience after another. Through most of the writing process, this book carried the working title, The Next Republican President, and I would joke, well, it's a long-term project. So one reason it took so long is I found myself in the position of a financial writer covering, over the next three years, I found myself in the position of a financial writer covering the great crash of 1929. I'd begin with a warning, but by the time I got to the bottom of the page, reality was much, already much worse than my direst predictions. In fact, the experience of writing this book reminded me of a quip of Evelyn Waugh's to a leftist friend during the socialist 1940s. How miserable it is, Waugh said, to be able to foresee the future. You have to suffer through everything twice, once in, in anticipation, then again in reality. Whereas, for his unmindful friend, Waugh said, the future was just a series of lovely surprises. So, I fear that the Republican Party and the conservative movement are headed toward a series of nasty surprises indeed, and that is the theme of this book. Why, why and what to do about it? How bad is it? Well, I fear we may be headed toward a cataclysmic defeat, a 1980 in reverse. The latest polls report that 61% of the American public think that the Iraq War was a mistake. More than 70% of Americans think that the country is on the wrong track, an astonishingly bad number for a non-recession year. 
Historically, Democrats have been perceived as the more caring and compassionate party, Republicans as the more honest and effective party. Yet today, Democrats enjoy a 5 to 3 advantage in polls over Republicans on the question which party can manage government better. They own the management issue. And they hold a 2 to 1 advantage on integrity and ethics. They even outpoll Republicans on national security for the first time since the Goldwater race of 1964. If there are any Democrats in the hall tonight, I can tell you you're going to have a very enjoyable 25 minutes. <laughs> a majority of Americans express a favorable view of the Democratic Party. A majority of, Republican, of Americans express an unfavorable view of the Republican Party. On the question, which party cares more about people like you, Democrats currently hold a two-to-one advantage over the GOP. Ditto on the question, which party can be described as the party of change. Two-thirds of Americans disapprove of the job George W. Bush is doing as president. All the gains in party affiliation that Republicans have achieved since 1980 have been wiped out. Today's 20-somethings tilt Democratic by the widest margin ever recorded for any age cohort in the history of polling. As of year-end, the Democratic presidential candidates had collectively raised twice as much money as the Republican presidential candidates. You can only imagine how bad things would be if the Republicans weren't the party of the rich. De <laughs> Conservatives tend to react to these dismal numbers by blaming the Bush administration for abandoning conservative principle. This is the theory of politics that holds that if the voters reject ham and eggs, it's because they want double ham and double eggs, or... An Another way of putting it, if the voters aren't agreeing with you, the answer is to speak slower and louder and say the same thing over and over again. Now, I would dearly like to believe this theory, and sometimes I almost talk myself into it, but the evidence does not support it. Conservatives worry that Bush spent too much and cut taxes too little, and that he, should have, he would have done better if he had done the opposite. Yet by margins of five to four, Americans say the Bush tax cuts were not worth it. When offered a clear choice between tax cutting and budget balancing, Americans opt for budget balancing by a margin of two to one. Support for George Bush's prescription drug benefit, intensely and rightly disliked by conservatives, ranges among the general public between 80% and 90%. Had George Bush not proposed that benefit, he would not have been elected in 2004. Had he not passed it, he would not have been reelected in 2004. Uh, it does have one little side effect, which is... Uh, when you present value its likely projected costs, it's going to cost 15 times as much as the Iraq War. Consistent majorities oppose President Bush's stem cells position. Between 2002 and 2006, the proportion of Americans who thought military force could stem terrorism plunged from, uh, by 16 points, from about half to about a third. Beyond these poll attitudes, beyond these issues, the social basis of the Republican coalition is corroding. The Nixon-Reagan majority that dominated politics from 1970 to 1994 rested upon the votes of the great American middle. Where you saw a white, married, church-going family whose ancestors arrived in this country before World War II, living in a medium-sized city more than 50 miles from an ocean, with, between, with a middle amount of education between two and four years of college, and a middle amount of income between seventy-five dollars and $125,000, there you saw Republicans. But this great American middle is declining in relative terms. America is becoming less white, less married, less church-going. Republican prosperity has increased the ranks of the wealthy and the highly educated. Some 5% of American households now earn more than $200,000. But the wealthy and highly educated 
no longer vote Republican. Tip O'Neill used to complain that the Democrats had converted the working class into the middle class, and the moment they had reached the middle class, thanks to the Democrats, the working class had ceased to vote Democratic. Republicans can now ironically say that Republican policies have moved many in the middle class into the upper class, and when they reach the upper class, they stop voting Republican because the Republicans are the party of the middle class and the Democrats are the more fashionable party of the college professors and the glitterati. At the same time, the population of people at the bottom is growing. Open immigration has increased the portion of the population that is poor and ill-educated, and the poor and the ill-educated, like the wealthiest and the best educated, also vote disproportionately Democratic. Now, that is a rather shocking thing and, uh, to say. It's rather surprising. Paul Krugman writes column after column in the New York Times arguing that it's not true. And I spent a lot of time in, com- in comeback looking at the evidence uh, as to the voting behavior of the American elite. It's rather difficult to get to because, uh, voting, because all of this information relies on statistical sampling and the number of people who are at the top is so tiny that it's hard to do statistical sampling. Still, here's what we know. Uh, in 2004, eg- the exit polls not only asked people how much money they made, they also allowed them to describe their own class subjectively. Are you middle class, working class? What do you describe yourself? About 4% in 2000 described themselves as upper class, which by coincidence was the proportion of the population that made more than $200,000 that year. We don't know that those are the same people, but it's a good guess. That 4% voted for Gore over Bush. In 2004, John Kerry carried a majority of the country's 25 wealthiest zip codes. In Comeback, I do some work with close data collected by the state of Missouri. Missouri became very interested in the problem of income inequality, and they collected a map of census tracts and identified the most equal and the most unequal census tracts. I then overlaid that with a map of voting behavior and found that the most equal areas of Missouri were the areas that were most Republican. They were typically exurban areas with lots of new housing, lots of young families, lots of kids, lots of public schools. Those were very Republican areas. People were basic, People had moved there looking for homogenous, or as they're disparagingly called, white bread neighborhoods. The areas that were most unequal, places like um, the gentrifying neighborhoods of Central West St. Louis, these areas were massively Democratic. And it wasn't just the poor people who were voting for the Democrats and the rich not. They were voting Democrat by margins of 70, 75, 80 percent. Everybody was voting Democratic. Um, And indeed, when you looked at, um, when you then took some of these areas, uh, in one case, when you look at uh, Richard Gephardt's neighborhood uh, district, half of which was in a gentrifying area and half of which was in a traditional um, uh, inner suburb, we found that the closer he got to the richest parts of his district, the higher his vote increased. He got a majority of the vote outside the city limits of St. Louis in St. Louis County, where there were, uh, which is a classic um, inner, inner suburb. But as you got closer and closer and closer into the center of the city, closer to the university, uh, closer to the wine bars, uh, his vote went up to almost 70%. <laughs> There was a, so uh, given these problems, there was a reason that George W. Bush positioned himself as a compassionate conservative rather than a principled conservative in 2000. Had he run in 2000 the campaign his father ran in 1988, he would surely have lost Al Gore and not, and not just the popular vote but the whole shebang. Now, none of this is easy for Republicans to accept. It is not easy for me to accept. And the reaction um, to this book, I've been touring now for about two weeks, and uh, the reaction to the book has been one of squinty-eyed skepticism. Uh, this is not a message that Republicans want to hear. And I don't blame them. It's not a message that I wanted to hear when I started working on it. Uh, yet, it's true. 
Um, and uh, the b facts are the best basis of an intelligent response. And they challenge us to do better. The conservative movement in which I learned my politics won political power in the late 1970s by offering specific, useful, tangible solutions to the urgent and grave national problems of those days. Dial back the clock to the years of the late 1970s. Inflation, crime, social turmoil, rising tax burdens, family breakdown, economic slowdown, uh, low American productivity, industrial stagnation, labor strife, military defeat, corruption in government, Soviet aggression. These were the problems that Americans wrestled with in the late 1970s. And, con and conservative politics offered specific and credible solutions one by one. How do you stop inflation? Do you use wage and price controls, as John Kenneth Galbraith said, or do you use monetary means, as Milton Friedman urged? That was an intense debate in the late 1970s. Friedman won, and he was right. How do you stop crime? Do you need to have a transformation of the neighborhoods in which crime occurs, or will simply putting the criminals in jail and keeping them there longer do the job? James, one argument was advocated by almost every professional criminologist in America, the other by James Q. Wilson. And that argument was right. Uh, if you uh, deregulate the economy, can you accelerate the growth of labor factor productivity from the under 2% that we were in, uh, receiving in the late 1970s, the age of limits, to a faster rate? People like Lester Thoreau and Robert Reich said it was impossible. The de people like George Stigler said it could be done if you deregulated. We did deregulate, and it happened. The American economy uh, took off, and productivity accelerated, and so on, and so on, and so on. We won argument after argument by mobilizing information, mobilizing proof. Our ideas worked. We were right. We made America a better place. And our old adversaries in the trade union movement could have exactly predicted what happened next by working hard, so hard and so successfully, we worked ourselves right out of our jobs. Americans don't worry so much about crime anymore, or the Soviets, or the underclass, or welfare, or even inflation, although that one may yet return. They have new worries, and we keep offering them old answers. We tell them we're going to cut their income taxes, even as 80% of Americans pay more in payroll taxes than in income taxes. 29 million income-earning Americans pay no income tax at all. We wonder why Americans don't appreciate George Bush's tax cuts more. Well, the most important middle-class tax cut that George Bush delivered was that he raised the per-child tax credit from $500 to $1,000. Yet that $1,000 is only creditable against your income tax obligations. If a family has three kids but, but, uh, but does not have $1,500 in income tax uh, obligations, it can't use the tax credit. And if it does have those obligations and finds itself under the alternative min minimum tax, then, the, again, the tax credit disappears because it's not creditable against your alternative minimum tax. Three decades of tax reform have made the American income tax incredibly progressive. The top 1% pay more than one-third, actually close to 40% of all income taxes. The top 5% pay more than half, which means the bottom 95% look at their tax rates and say, seems about right. I repeat and come back an anecdote. And the details don't really matter uh, of who it is. It's just the punchline. But a grizzled ex-communist telling a young man who has just discovered Marxism, your answers are so old I've forgotten the questions. And I am afraid that is the way conservative politics often seems to the voting population. If conservatism is to remain relevant, we have to rediscover the difference between permanent principles like limited government, the rule of law, national sovereignty, and transient policies. We must emancipate ourselves from our natural desire to see the world as we wish it were and to look instead at the world from the point of view of the people who decide elections, a middle-class American, in fact, 
a the American precisely at the middle, earning $44,000 a year with a family income of $70,000. This person is earning no more money today than he did in the year 2000. And that's not because his rapacious employer is grinding the boot in his face. In fact, compensation costs have risen handsomely since 2000 by about $5 an hour on average. But none of that extra money has made it to the pockets of median workers. Every dime has been intercepted by rising health care costs. The cost of a health care policy for a family of four has doubled in the Bush years, from about $6,000 to about $12,000. So that's where the raises of Mr. and Mrs. America went. And it gets worse for them. Remember, employees pay about one quarter of their health costs out of pocket. So out of stagnant wages, they are paying $1,000 a year in extra health bills. Plus, their energy bill has gone up. The typical family now pays more to drive its cars and heat and cool its dwelling than it pays for clothing and entertainment combined. Yes, they received a nice little tax cut, but their state and local taxes have risen, pushed up in considerable part by the surge in legal and illegal immigration. Some 8 million people migrated to the United States between 2000 and 2006, at least half of them illegally. Immigrants qualify for only a limited range of federal services, but they use schools, roads, prisons, and hospitals, all of which fall on state and local treasuries, supported by, state and pro by uh, sales and property taxes rather than the progressive income tax. The state of North Carolina, for example, spent only $10 million in 1995 to educate the children of illegals. In 2005, it spent $210 million, a 2,100% increase in a single decade. Our middle-class Americans feel great anxiety about their future, and reasonably so. The data are not conclusive, but it seems to be the case that upward mobility has sharply slowed in America since 1970, and that an American child's chances of rising to a higher social class are inferior to those of a German, French, or Swedish child. Americans invest heavily in education to boost their children's life chances, but employers are getting more skeptical of paper credentials, and returns on education seem to be dropping. These median Americans have not managed to save as much as they should have. They will depend heavily on Social Security and Medicare in their retirement years. Yet these programs are radically fiscally unsound. Social Security will start spending more than it collects within the next 10 years. As for the cost of Medicare, the current big idea in Washington seems to be that if we don't think about them, they will go away. This is just one example of unpreparedness. Here's another. This one from International Relations, the core business of the World Affairs Council. Democrats have slagged President Bush for alienating our European allies. If only the president had been more multilateral, the Europeans would have helped more in the war on terror. Now, I'm all for being nice to allies. And certainly there were too many times when the Bush administration fell foul of the marvelous, definition, uh, the marvelous British definition of a gentleman, someone who never gives offense unintentionally. <laughs> but the most important geopolitical fact that the next president will face is the gathering and accelerating decline in the power of our traditional allies. In 1985, the United States, plus the NATO allies of Europe and Canada, plus Japan, South Korea, Taiwan, Australia, and the others, produced about 50% of world economic output. If current trends continue, that same group of countries, now reinforced by, new NAFTA, by the new NATO members in Central Europe and new NAFTA partner Mexico, that same group of countries that, once, that 20 years ago produced half the planet's output will, in 20 years, produce one-third the planet's output. That's a huge swing in global power, almost all of it caused by the economic slowdown in Japan and Western Europe. This is the common denominator of the great security challenges we face from Islamic terrorism and the rise of China. Many Republicans hope that the United States can offset these negative trends by building an alliance with India, and I'm sure you've discussed that in your meetings here. And certainly, we all hope so. 
Otto von Bismarck remarked at the close of the 19th century that the most important geopolitical fact of the 20th would be that the United States and Great Britain spoke the same language. Perhaps it may matter in the 21st that so do Americans and the Indian governing elite. But we should have few illusions on this score. The relationship with India is based on a convergence of interests much more than a sharing of values. It will never be as close or as comfortable as the relationship with Europe. Increasingly, the United States will feel alone on this planet. In Comeback, I try to offer a series of specific recommendations to meet all of these challenges. We need a conservative commitment to universal health care provided by private firms through competitive markets. Who volunteered Republicans to take the bullet for every crummy HMO and overpaid health care CEO? I want to lower corporate income taxes so as to accelerate U.S. economic growth to keep pace with China. I point out that if the United States can sustain 3% economic growth, the American economy will remain larger than China's for the balance of the century, even assuming China continues to grow as rapidly as it now claims it grows. And I'd like to see reductions in the payroll tax and alternative minimum tax for parents, financed by higher energy taxes and increased taxes on upper income consumption. The days of unfinanced tax reforms must end. Wisely or foolishly, the United States is committed to a huge increase in federal expenditure to pay the promised retirement benefits of the baby boom generation. This money is spent. It cannot be unspent. Our responsibility is to finance the spending in the least destructive possible way. We need to stop wishing away the evidence of gathering income inequality and slowing economic mobility. Conservatives do not see equality as automatically a good thing, but extreme inequality is clearly a bad and dangerous thing. And the conservative long-term response to inequality should emphasize not re redistribution, but improvements in human capital. And in that regard, the United States is not doing very well. It's striking that American third graders score in about the middle of the pack when tested against their international peers. It takes nine years of expensive education to knock them into last place. It does not help that the United States is importing tens of millions of, mil of very low-skilled workers whose descendants on the evidence do not catch up to the native-born even after three generations in this country. We need a conservative environmental policy that accepts that this issue now ranks at the top of concerns of voters in all advanced societies. And we need to fuse bioethics into our healthcare decision-making. It is a bitter irony that conservatives have succeeded in swaying American opinion on the abortion issue only just in time to be knocked back to zero by new promises that human beings can achieve longer and fuller life by ignoring or manipulating the humanity of generations yet to come. Some of these ideas are novel, or anyway, a departure from past Republican practice, but they keep faith with what I believe are the highest traditions of the conservative movement. Whenever, when you, whenever you think of the ideas presented in Comeback, I would ask at least this, that Republicans and conservatives rededicate themselves to the methods of pragmatic problem solving to which Comeback aspires. Over the past eight years, the Republican Party of George W. Bush has concerned itself above all with the task of winning elections by any means necessary. What is compassionate conservatism but the political equivalent of a marketing slogan, like low-fat potato chips, a focus group creation crea uh, invented by cunning marketers? Conservatism as a philosophy of ideas, a politics grounded in careful study of the way the world works, has been reduced to slogans. My generation turned away from liberalism because of the collapse of liberal governance during the crisis of the 1970s. We were drawn to conservatism because of the force and allure of conservative ideas. But we conservatives now have neglected the ideas business for too long. A new generation hungers for answers and solutions, and too often they hear on the radio and on TV only polemics, wisecracks, accusations, and talking points. Don't misunderstand. I agree. The smash-mouth conservatism often heard on radio and television can be good fun. 
but it does not change minds. It does not even seek to change minds. Tabloid media beget tabloid politics. When you campaign stupid, you win stupid. And when you win stupid, you govern stupid. It's time now for conservatives to rediscover the politics of ideas, to rededicate ourselves to the mission epitomized by institutions like this one. And that's how you make a comeback. That's how you deserve it. And I thank you for your attention. We have time for a few questions, so I'll just open it to the floor, and I'm sure Mr. From here can answer anything you try. Go ahead. Oh, I'm sorry, our president gets no, the no, first no, question. No, no. Go ahead. Go ahead. Um, do, do you have a candidate? Uh, who do you think the major party nominees will be, and who do you think will win? Um, I, I am working on the Rudy Giuliani campaign, um, uh, and I am very hopeful uh, that he will be the Republican candidate. But of course. I, I have no certainty of that. I'm, I'm inclined to think that uh, Barack Obama will defeat Hillary Clinton. I just, um, I mean, I don't know. It's a, it's a, parties are like families, and they have their own internal ways of doing things, and it's hard for outsiders to guess. But it just seems so apparent to me that they want to nominate him, and they feel like she's the, what they feel they ought to do or have to do, and he's what they want to do. And, and they did, last time they did what they felt they ought to do, and it didn't work out. So this time I'm inclined to think they'll do what they want to do. Uh, I, it is very hard for me to imagine uh, that the Democrats don't win this election. I mean, I think Giuliani is the one Republican who could pull it out, but a lot of Republicans don't agree with me, and, uh, or anyway, don't care. Uh, and uh, so I, I think it is very likely that we are going to face a Democratic president with increased Democratic holdings in two houses of Congress. And it's going to look a lot, there's going to be an opportunity for Democrats to have a burst of the kind of activism that we last saw in the middle 1960s. And that's one of the reasons that the issues of, uh, uh, I'm talking about today seem to me so very important. Could you be very specific on your ideas about the immigration? I'll be very specific. Um, uh, the core, we focus in political language on a distinction between legal and illegal immigration. Illegal being bad, legal being good. Uh, but the fact is that legal, America's legal immigration is also massively low-skilled. Um, and, and that is, is very startling when you, for example, compare American immigration to Canadian or Australian. Legal, even, even legal immigrants, when they arrive in the country, after 10 years, earn less money than the native-born do. That was not true before 1970. Before 1970, legal immigrants earned more. And in Canada and Australia, it is still true that immigrants earn more within a decade than the native-born. Uh, what happens is people, um, you have, uh, because of the system of preferences which so favors the immediate relatives of recent immigrants, uh, you bring people who are like those recent immigrants, and the, the, the um, immigration is led by people who arrive often initially illegally, somehow regularize themselves, whether through marriage or a visa or something happens, and they then bring in their family who have the same low level of education that they do. And, and the result is you have a, an, immigrant, an immigrant population that is massively unskilled. So what I would propose to do is to make the important dividing line skilled versus unskilled. Um, and uh, I begin with definitely the illegal immigration problem, and my emphasis would be on enforcement at the point of, of employment. I'd like to see a card that is difficult to falsify, that candidate Giuliani has talked about that, um, and that would have to be presented every time. Remember, um, I'm not going to remember the number, I quote, quote in the book, but I think if I have this right, 
There, there, I mean, there's some tens of millions of employment transactions in the United States every year. People get a job or leave a job. But 5% of the labor market is made up of illegal immigrants. So how, whatever that number is, which I now forget, of those tens of billions of transactions, 5% of them are illegal. If you had an effective way of stopping those transactions, they would you would make the, this, this kind of work less attractive, and it would be like day-to-day. -day. I mean, every, every um, it, 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 in the constant turnover, even people who had jobs would think twice before seeking a new one. Um, if, uh, if the numbers are right, that um, about 6 million, we, we, about 4 million illegals have arrived in the past six years, uh, that, uh, that, that implies um, that about a million and a half of the illegal population have been here um, for less than... Uh, let me do that right. Uh, let me put, yeah, that, that, that implies we're getting about 750,000 illegals a year. So a million and a half have been here for less than two years. It would be quite realistic to imagine that a considerable part of them would return home if there were stricter enforcement. Then it, it would dribble away from there. Beyond that, I think then the preference system should be radically revised so that it becomes easier to bring in um, that, that Intel and um, Columbia Presbyterian Hospital shouldn't have to hear on January 3rd that the quota is full for everyone they want to bring. And meanwhile, uh, we are bringing in people who are going to be dependent on the Medicare and other health care services. Um, and the scale of this dependency is really quite dramatic because, uh, because you're dealing with people who are so very poor. And because American services are comparatively generous, um, they are very costly to the, the federal and, and local treasuries. I think I saw a question back there. Go ahead. Uh, despite the antipathy that you describe uh, that so many Americans have for the Republican Party, the Republican leaders don't seem to have gotten the message that they need to change I'll say. Well, if you say, how would I, meaning me personally, what I do is I go around to Republican. I'm, I'm going to be doing a lot of this I'm going to, for the next year, and it's going to be um, more intense after November. I, I mean, I had a conversation, actually, when I was doing the research for the book. I sort of did a presentation to an important political figure in Washington of um, my thoughts just, just before everything was finished. And I said, what do you think of this? And uh, he said, well, you know, after November, there may well be an audience for this. And, and I said, well, what do you anticipate happening in November? He said, well, we're going to have the stuffing beaten out of us. So, so why do we have to wait till then? But apparently we do. Um, uh, I am originally from Canada, and I, I've lived through this movie before. I lived through the 1993 collapse of the Progressive Conservative Party. Now, that was in the context of a five-party system. That doesn't happen when there are two parties. But it is possible to... Um, I remember that the Conservatives believed six weeks... Out before they were reduced to two seats in the Canadian Parliament. Uh, six weeks out, I had a conversation with the leader of the Conservative Party uh, who was convinced that she was going to make it. Uh, uh, pol I mean, politicians are that way. And uh, the Republican Party has been so successful for a long, such a long time, it's very hard, very hard to persuade it that it's in, in the kind of trouble it is. Um, and that's why it's doing self-indulgent things. I mean, that's why you have candidates saying, standing up and saying, uh, we need to return to the Reagan model and not chase after all of these newfangled ideas. And that's why Rudy Giuliani has been unable to break through, because he is a candidate who pushes the Republican Party outside of its comfort zone. One last story. I, I worked at, when I was in the White House with uh, Karen Hughes, the president's chief communications advisor. And we had, in many ways, a tense and difficult relationship. I, I won't deny that. But... Um, 
Uh, she has a very good line in, in her book. In fact, it's the only good line, so I'll save you $29 in six hours by repeating it. Uh, she has left the White House, and she's walking on the beach in, in Galveston. And she looks up, and there's one of those planes that drags the advertising flyers. And the flyer says, Jill, come back. I am desolate without you, Jack. And she thinks, wrong message, Jack. Too much about you, not enough about her. <laughs> and and uh, that's, when you, when that's the way the Republicans, they, 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 uh, when you listen to these debates, it's about what we want to do, our ideas. We're not listening to the boss, the people, but what, what's on their mind. We're telling them what we want to do. So anyway, so I'm going to keep plugging at it, and I hope, I hope it will have an effect. Uh, but I'm going to be doing this for a long time. Um, and I'll, you know, I'm going to go to Republican clubs all over the country to talk about this and to try to hope it'll take less long. It took the Canadian Conservatives 13 years. Okay. was to do some of those very things. And the reason the Republicans lost is that that base stayed home. Yes. They didn't go vote. So how do you do what you say? I mean, you, the argument over here was how do our, our candidates get smart enough? Well, our candidates aren't going to get smart enough because the people that they have to get voted, you know, they have to vote them into the primary, yeah. truly believe that what George was doing was wrong. Yeah. Um, I, that, that's a very shrewd question. Uh, I think one, uh, I am certainly interested in trying to preserve the core Republican ideas. I'm not here trying to turn, the, turn things inside out and to um, un, undo the kind of intellectual breakthroughs that happened in the Reagan years. But here, here's where I, what, what I suppose my point to Republicans would be, that you have a lot of things that you think are game winners, like the tax issue. You have to understand it's not a game winner anymore. Uh, and it may, now I believe that we need lower taxes on saving and investment because it's good for the economy. But I think we need to reconceptualize it as a free trade type issue that is something that is good, but the people aren't going to vote for. So we have to add to our message things that they will vote for. That's where the health care message comes in. Uh, that is probably the most radical thing I'm talking about. Is you have to, that it, is, it is such a huge issue for Americans. You just have to bite the bullet and say, we are going to be a party that is going to use markets and private delivery, but our aspiration, it, we're not accepting uh, that the costs are going up. We're not accepting the uninsured. That is going to be a top domestic priority. Same thing on the environmental issue. That this, I mean, this is one of those issues where, in fact, almost every piece of environmental legislation passed since 1965 has been signed by a Republican president, except I think Jimmy Carter's Superfund Act. But it's, not, it's something the Republicans don't put front and center. This is very important to people. Now, it's interesting. The environment is a, a strange issue because it's not really very much about the facts. When you ask voters who's best on the environmental issue, they say Barack Obama, who has never, who's got not a, never done anything on the issue. Uh, John McCain, not my guy, so I'm objective about this, he's got the longest uh, en environmental record of any of the candidates, and he doesn't figure at all when you ask people who's good on the environment uh, among the candidates. We need to talk about... But, this is about identification. It's about aspiration. And if you put those as sort of it, you're in the store window, 
uh, features. This is something we're going to do for you. We're going to have also, uh, we're going to make the child tax credit more valuable by making it creditable against the payroll tax and also against the AMT. You can then win public support to do a lot of things that are valuable and important but not popular, like reducing taxes on, on um, saving an investment, uh, like maintaining support for free trade. Uh, and uh, so I think what I'm, I'm saying is preserve, we're preserving, but we're going to have to add some new features to uh, connect with a public that is changing. One more, go ahead. I consider myself an independent. I'm the voter that everybody wants. And uh, I find myself very so, uh, fiscally conservative, but more socially liberal. Yeah. I thought Giuliani was going to be my candidate, but he has kowtowed to the evangelicals. He's denied that he's for abortion rights. Well, he's more ducked the question. Well, okay. well, that's, come on, that's fair. <laughs> you would too. Why do the Republicans feel that they need to follow that evangelical base when it really hasn't been proven to be that strong okay. uh, over the long term? Okay, this is, this is, and this takes us actually a little bit into the guts of the way politicians think. Uh, if you ask Americans, how do you feel about abortion? Um, about 60% want to see abortion remain more or less legal, and about 40% want to see abortion more restricted. So you say, okay, bingo, there's a pro-choice majority. Now you ask people, well, do you vote on this issue? How is this the most important issue to you? Only about 12% of Americans say abortion is the most important issue to them. And of those 12, 8% are pro-life and 4% are pro-choice. So I'm a politician. I know there's theoretically a pro-choice majority in the country. But in terms of people who are actually going to vote on the issue, uh, there is a pro-life majority. And once I get into the Republican primaries, then it's overwhelming. I mean, that is, uh, we, saw, well, we saw what happened in Iowa. Uh, that's why Giuliani didn't run there, that, that you can't I – mean, that is, it is a, it's a pro-life convention. Uh, so, uh, that is, so that is a big established fact. Now, here's – here's, I write about this in the book a little bit. Here is, though, where our party gets a little rigid and doesn't see that the world is going to change. What happens if Roe v. Wade is overturned? We're one vote away from that. Suddenly, what, the reason we, that the 60% who are pro-choice don't vote on the issue is because it, do, it seems kind of abstract. Uh, it, it doesn't, it doesn't, you know, uh, there's an abortion right, and it's not very pretty, and maybe they wish that would, you know, it, um, it were modified somewhat. But, you know, uh, abortion is becoming less common. They're, we're now down to about 1.2 million abortions a year from 1.5 million 15 years ago, so that's kind of progress. Uh, they don't have, the, the pro-choice majority doesn't have to think about it very much. Now, now Roe v. Wade is overturned, and abortion politics and suddenly return back to the states. Suddenly, this is going to be the dominant issue in every gubernatorial election, every state senate, every state legislative race. And at that point, this thing which has actually worked for Republicans suddenly starts working massively against them. Um, I, I wrote this, and I, just, I write for a magazine called National Review. Every, I write a daily blog, and my colleagues are all there. And I've been, they're so enraged at me about this. It's really, but, I, but it's going to explode. It's going to turn around. Now, my advice to the party is that the way um, to think of that, that we need a mental revolution where you begin to think about abortion the way 100 years ago Americans thought about alcohol abuse. Um, there was a time when alcohol abuse was an incredibly serious problem in this country. I mean, people today, Americans today drink about one-fifth as much as their great-grandparents did. Uh, and if you read, if you read, I mean, people are just drunk all the time. <laughs> uh, and... Uh, 
So what, what, what happened? Well, the first thing they tried to do, or they tried a number, one solution they tried was prohibition, ban it. And the result was you got an explosion of, the issue became divisive, it became, um, uh, it, uh, it became a source of tremendous anger, um, and anyway, and it became a great source of organized crime and so on. The other approach was temperance. Don't prohibit, explain, persuade. And the temperance movement succeeded. We just don't drink the way people did. Um, and we do it not because we're forbidden to. We do it because we think it's wrong or unwise. Um, and that's just not to say you never have a drink, but you don't drink the way people used to do. Well, this, I suggest, is sort of the model for abortion politics, that, um, that through persuasion, uh, through um, the use of ultrasound technology, through m- making people you know, more aware of what's at stake, that you can persuade Americans to, re- just as we've gone from one and a half million abortions a year to 1.2, you know, we may see a day where there are 600,000 or 400,000. But we also have to be aware that as the number of abortions shrinks, the cases that remain are the hardest cases and the, the ones that are going to be most sympathetic. And it is going to become increasingly politically dangerous to try to um, use the law against them. That as uh, that, uh, we're, for example, we're seeing that there are fewer and fewer teenagers having abortions. The abortion population now is much more women in their early 20s. Are you going to tell them what to do? I mean, it's one thing to talk to a 16-year-old, another thing to talk to a 24-year-old woman. Um, and incre- many of them are women who have had one child before and who are usually dealing in some way, they're very low income, dealing with the consequences of the failure of a relationship, the failure of a promise. I mean, this is too long an answer, I know. But, but, yeah. but this is... But th- this is the, the, the backlash that is pending against Republican politics, and I, and I guess this is part of my frustration with, the, with my party and the experience of, of talking to my fellow Republicans about this. I say this is around the corner, and people tell me, no, no, what will happen is um, I, had this, I just had this debate online today with a colleague of mine who's a strong advocate of pro-life politics. No, 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 when the abortion right goes away, Americans aren't going to miss it. And so I said, well, Okay. <laughs> Um, that's quite a thing to bet, bet, bet a party on. Um, I, it doesn't seem to me an overwhelmingly empirically convincing proposition, but who knows? You might be right. Anyway, that's, I think, the time, last and question actually, we have time for. Thank you. I lied. I missed one of our most loyal David. members, and okay. he's got one more question. Okay. David, I'm, I'm, I don't hope this is not a, a huge, long question. But the questions are short. It's just my answers are so darn long. <laughs> I might be in, too. I'm going to try and uh, give you a way out. But, um, no, it's not necessarily... Uh, issue that drives the electorate now. What sort of solutions might conservatism offer to deal with a huge problem like global climate change, especially given China's rise in yeah. global marketplace? Um, that's a very interesting question. I'm not sure I have a completely worked out answer. But one of the things I suggest semi-cynically in the book is that actually climate change could well be an issue that um, redounds to the political benefit of people on the right. Um, and we have seen this happen in England. It is happening in Canada, and it looks like it may, be, it may yet happen in Australia. And here's why. As voters become convinced that it's real and it's a problem and something should be done, they become aware that many of the proponents, people like Al Gore, many of the, are people who have been itching for an excuse to take their cars away anyway. And this time they actually may have some backing, but they've wanted to do this for 30 years. So now you have this problem. Now you think, okay, it may be real. Who are we going to turn to? The people who have made it clear they're going to do the absolute minimum essential to avert disaster? Or the people who really are going to enjoy it? 
And they have, and, and you have seen Canadians have, as, uh, have turned to a conservative government and put confidence in them on, on this issue. Uh, I am a great believer in using tax rather than regulatory measures because uh, they, they are transparent, uh, they are rational, and they encourage private substitution. So uh, one of the things that you hear the candidates talk a lot about when they talk about energy is investment in technology as a way of avoiding saying to people, the surest way to encourage people to stop using fossil fuels is for the price to stay high. People don't like high prices, so they promise them that they will invest in these technologies. Uh, but it's not going to work. I mean, government is a very poor investor. Uh, we've, as we, in the Clinton years, the uh, federal government spent about a billion dollars on engine technology without anything to show for it. The Bush years, another billion dollars was spent on engine technology. If these people have ideas about engine technology, take it to Goldman Sachs. I mean, there's, there's no problem getting a good idea financed in America. Um, what is somebody, somebody, a, a, a capitalist, uh, I, uh, sorry, private equity guy knows that the great thing about the United States is it's the only country on earth where you can borrow $100 million without owning a suit. Uh, uh, there is, there, there's, there's capital if you have an idea. Um, so let's tell the capital markets the price is going to be high. Um, as uh, we're not going to tax, put a tax on top of the present price, price, that's too painful. But as the price descends from $100 back to the $35 to $50, it probably is the real market price. Uh, we will start wedging in taxes to make sure that it doesn't fall below 50 and everybody make your decisions accordingly. Um, as to China, my suspicion is that the Chinese are just barraged with environmental issues that impinge directly on the quality of everyday life. And we are seeing the beginnings of citizens' movements in China very much focused on concrete, practical, day-to-day -day issues having to do with the environment. And this may be the way that the Chinese democratizing movement that people have been wondering about, that it takes form, that it won't be a human rights movement. It won't be a movement about freedom of religion. It will be a movement about, I'd like clean water to come out of the tap, please. And, um, it, and, uh, and we, are, we are seeing the beginnings of those things. Uh, and it's a very hard demand for a regime to say no to. So it may be that this becomes an issue not only to change the way China treats the rest of the planet, but uh, the way China is governed. But uh, they are very difficult. They're not very susceptible to external pressure. And uh, uh, the Indians may be a little bit better, but not a whole lot much. Well, thank, thank you. you very thank, much. Thank you. And thank all of you. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.